Coming up on Star Stuff, the KT Boundary Event Dinosaur Mass Extinction was a double whammy, with the asteroid impact supercharging gigantic volcanic eruptions, new insights into some of the mysteries of the Dwarf Planet series, and scientists from Japan and Canada win the Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering that neutrinos have mass. All that and more coming up on Star Stuff. This is Star Stuff. A new study has concluded that the asteroid which triggered the mass extinction event which killed all the dinosaurs other than birds also doubled the magma flow from one of the largest volcanic eruptions in planet Earth's history, further compounding what was already a catastrophic disaster. The research, reported in the journal Science, claims earthquakes generated by the impact of a 10-kilometre-wide asteroid in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula 66 million years ago changed India's Deccan Traps volcanic field from a series of small eruptions to dramatically more massive events lasting hundreds of thousands of years. It was this combination of events which triggered the Cretaceous Tertiary Mass Extinction, better known to scientists as the KT Mass Extinction, which was one of the greatest mass extinction events of all time, killing over 75% of all life on Earth. The study's lead author, Professor Paul René from the University of California, Berkeley, says the Deccan Traps volcanic magma system was essentially invigorated and boosted by the impact, causing fundamental changes in how the lava was generated, the size of the eruptions, and also their frequency, from what were originally a series of small lava flows a few metres thick to much larger eruptions, producing magma flows more than 50 metres deep. The Deccan Traps are one of the largest volcanic features on Earth. Located in central western India near Mumbai, they consist of multiple layers of solidified flood basalt, up to three kilometres thick, covering a massive area of over half a million square kilometres. They were caused as the Indian tectonic plate moved north over the Reunion Mantle Plume hotspot in what is now the Indian Ocean. Rene and colleagues examined lava samples from the Deccan flood basalt using high-resolution argon radioisotope dating techniques to provide the most accurate dates yet for the volcanic eruptions both before and after the asteroid impact. The authors found a sudden change in volcanism within 50,000 years of the impact, which sounds like a lot to you and me, but in terms of narrowing something down in geologic time, that's pretty precise. To put it in layman's terms, it means this transition in magma flow occurred right at the time of the asteroid impact. The authors believe the asteroid impact which produced the Chicxulub crater caused a huge seismic event that fundamentally changed the plumbing system of the Deccan volcanic magma chambers. René says the impact was equivalent to a magnitude 11 earthquake. Both the impact and the volcanism blanketed the planet with dust and noxious fumes, drastically changing the Earth's climate. The authors found this large volume of magma continued erupting for about half a million years after the mass extinction event began. Debate about the cause of the Cretaceous tertiary mass extinction event has been raging between geologists and paleontologists for decades. Rene and colleagues previously published research showing that the KT mass extinction event occurred within 30,000 years or less of the asteroid impact, which again is fairly precise when you're talking about something that happened 66 million years ago. 
that impact sent shockwaves around the planet, causing mega tsunamis and earthquakes and sending burning ejected debris high into the atmosphere, causing global forest fires as it rained back down onto the planet's surface. Dust from the impact, together with smoke from all the fires, blanketed the planet, blocking out sunlight and triggering an impact winter which could have lasted for decades. Without light, plants that survived the eruption and the asteroid impact began dying off, and that led to the starvation of plant-eating animals, and eventually the starvation of the big carnivores. Making the whole matter even worse was the fact that the asteroid landed in a bed of calcium sulfate gypsum, producing a vast sulfur dioxide aerosol. As well as further reducing the level of sunlight reaching the Earth's surface, this aerosol would have precipitated as acid rain, killing any surviving surface vegetation, as well as plankton in the seas and those organisms which build shells from calcium carbonate. It was one of the greatest mass extinction events the Earth has ever faced. René says he was sceptical about the link between the asteroid impact and the decan traps, but he had to take it seriously when the date started rolling off the computer. There was a kind of an odd change in the volcanism in India, which is the decan traps, as it's called, that occurred at sort of about two-thirds of the way through this volcanic episode, most of which lasted about seven or 800,000 years or so. And that had been known for some time, but where exactly the extinction level occurred within this three kilometer pile of lavas was really uncertain. So we began to realize that there was a fundamental transition in how the lavas were being erupted. The size of the individual eruptions suddenly got quite large from little small lava flows that might be a few meters or even 10 or 20 meters thick to these massive things that are like 50 meters thick and, and hugely distributed, I mean, all over the Indian subcontinent, really. And the, things like the chemistry of the lavas changes rather abruptly. And there are all these, all these things that suggested that something fundamental had happened, and we speculated that perhaps this represented a fundamental change in the whole plumbing system of the magma at KT time in response to this huge input of seismic energy that would have been triggered by giant impact, which would have been the equivalent of something like a magnitude 11 earthquake, by the way, very powerful. And we know that earthquakes can trigger volcanic eruptions and things like changes in fluid flow in geysers and things like that. And so we kind of extrapolated our knowledge about these events to very, very large energies. And it looked like, in fact, this was feasible. What's new about what we've done is that we think we have shown that there's a very good chance that the Deccan magma system was essentially invigorated. It was boosted by the impact, which caused fundamental changes in how magma was generated and, and allowed for much larger eruptions after the impact, after the fundamental change in the, in the permeability of, of the crust, essentially. So we think that these two phenomena, which people have, have pondered for decades as to whether or not it's coincidence that they happen more or less at the same time, we've shown that the more or less is getting smaller and smaller, and therefore the idea that they might be coincidental becomes less and less probable. And so the fact that these two are in all likelihood genetically related is fairly significant development. Uh, it also means that people who argue about whether the, the impact or the volcanism caused the mass extinctions really now have a 
kind of a semantic argument on their hands because they're both genetically related. They're both part of a similar process. They both have very similar fingerprints in terms of what they do in terms of generating climate-modifying gases. And so trying to tease apart these two and, and argue that one or the other was more important becomes first of all, more challenging, and second of all, perhaps less important to to distinguish, because really it was the combined effects of both, I think, is the upshot of what we're and the correlation doesn't end there, does it? When you look at the time it's taken marine life to recover from that event, that correlates with the end of the decan traps. Yeah, that, that, that I think is actually one of the really important aspects of our work is that the time it takes for the marine fauna and many aspects of ocean chemistry to recover to pre-impact values or states is about half a million years. And that just happens to be the length of time it takes for this invigorated volcanism to finally die down. And we don't think that's a coincidence either. We think that probably the invigorated volcanism suppressed the recovery from the extinctions until the time that that invigorated volcanism began to die down. Were there any surprises for you? There were some surprises in what we found. I I was a bit of a skeptic about this idea at first. The, the, The notion that the impact and the volcanism might be genetically related has actually been suggested before, although the previous suggestions were that the impact initiated the volcanism. And we know now with absolute certainty that the igneous activity, the volcanism, and the whole system existed before the impact. That's unequivocally clear. So the notion that somehow an impact could exert such, you know, almost halfway across the world, could exert so much influence on a volcanic system, uh, I was a bit skeptical of. But, um, you know, when, when the date started rolling off the computer, we, you know, I had to take it seriously. So, so that was a bit of a surprise, and that's a good thing. That's Professor Paul René of the University of California, Berkeley. new insights into some of the mysteries of the Dwarf Planet series have been revealed in new detailed maps of the asteroid taken by NASA's Dawn spacecraft. Astronomers unveiled the new maps at the European Planetary Science Conference in France. Included in the release was a new topographic map showing over a dozen newly named landmarks on Ceres. The names are all derived from spirits, deities or festivals in different cultures which are associated with farming and agriculture. A second map combined blue, red and infrared spectral filters to create a false colour map showing different mineral compositions on the 945 kilometre wide dwarf planet's surface. A closer map was also provided of the 90 kilometre wide Akator crater, which contains those mysterious bright spots which have been intriguing both scientists and the general public ever since they were first noticed during Dawn's approach to the dwarf planet. The spots were initially thought to be ices on the crater floor. However, Dawn Principal Investigator Professor Chris Russell from the University of California, Los Angeles, now believes that based on their albedo or reflective properties, these deposits could actually be salts. Another close-up map features an unusual 8-kilometer-high conical mountain towering over the Syrian landscape. The weird pyramid-shaped mountain protrudes high above an otherwise smooth terrain. The strange structure is about 15 kilometres wide at its base and appears to be the only feature of its kind on Ceres. The Dawn spacecraft began orbiting Ceres on March 6, 2015, following a 14-month survey mission to another main-built asteroid, Vesta. 
That was between July 2011 and September 2012. Ceres is the largest body in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It orbits the Sun at an average distance of 114,010,000 kilometres, or about 2.8 times further out than the Earth. A year on Ceres lasts 4.6 Earth years. From what planetary scientists have been able to determine so far, Ceres appears to be a differentiated body, meaning it has a separate core, mantle and crust. The core is solid and rocky, surrounded by an icy mantle, possibly with remnants of an internal ocean of liquid water under a crust of water ice with hydrated minerals including carbonates and clays. The dwarf planet also appears to emit a tenuous exosphere, that is a thin atmosphere, of water vapour. A Japanese and a Canadian scientist have won the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering that elusive subatomic particles called neutrinos do have mass, a find which opens a new window on the fundamental nature of the universe. For more than eight decades now, the neutrino, the second most abundant particle in the universe after the photon, has been giving scientists the runaround. Takaki Kajita of Japan and Arthur MacDonald of Canada were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering the elementary particle's duplicitous nature, in the process revealing it has mass. See, prior to their discovery, the prevailing theory was that neutrinos were massless. What Kajita and MacDonald did was discover that neutrinos change, oscillating between different types or flavours as they're called. Now, all these different flavours share two of the three principal defining factors of a particle. They all have the same half-integer spin. Integer spin is sort of like the angular momentum of an object. They also share the property of having no electric charge. But what makes neutrinos different from each other is that they come in differing masses. The third identifying property, that of mass, must be different in neutrinos, depending on the state or flavour they're in, as they oscillate. It was back in 1930 that Austrian-born quantum physicist pioneer Wolfgang Pauli, after whom Pauli repulsion, the property that differentiates bosons from fermions, is named. He hypothesised the existence of an, at that time, undetected electrically neutral particle, which Italian physicist Enrico Fermi later named the neutrino. But the particle was extremely difficult to track down because it interacted only very weakly with all the other particles in the universe. In fact, right now, literally trillions of neutrinos are going through you, and I bet you haven't noticed. In 1956, two American scientists, Frederick Raines and Clyde Cowan, reported the first hard evidence for the existence of neutrinos. Then in 1988, American researchers Leon Letterman and Melvin Schultz, together with German-born scientist Jack Steinberger, received the Nobel Prize in Physics for uncovering the existence back in 1960 of at least two different kinds or flavours of neutrino. Their work was a key contribution to the standard model of particle physics, which seeks to explain how the universe is put together. In 1995, more than 20 years after Cowan's death, Raines is finally awarded the Nobel Physics Prize for the discovery he made with Cowan. That discovery, back in 1956, used a nuclear fission reactor to pump out neutrinos and a sensitive detector capable of spotting them. He shared that award with American Martin Pearl, who had unearthed another type of particle that looked like a neutrino, hinting at the possible existence of a third type or flavour of neutrino. This has since been confirmed. 
neutrinos created in radioactive processes such as those which take place in the sun, in supernova explosions and in nuclear reactors do come in at least three types or flavours known as the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino and the tau neutrino. In 1998, Kajita and his colleagues observed that neutrinos switched from one type to another, a process they called oscillation. They were able to detect the change as neutrinos travelled from the atmosphere through the Earth to the Super Kamiokande underground detector in Japan. The following year, MacDonald announced that neutrinos from the Sun were not disappearing, as had long been suspected, but were changing before they were detected by the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, located two kilometres below the surface in an Ontario nickel mine. In 2002, Raymond Davis Jr. from the United States and Masatoshi Kushina from Japan received the Nobel Prize in Physics for the first detection of neutrinos beyond Earth, originating both from the Sun and from a supernova. Controversy struck the neutrino research world in 2011 when European scientists working in Italy published experimental results claiming neutrinos can travel faster than the speed of light, a finding which challenges Albert Einstein's 1905 theory of special relativity. Problem was, neutrinos had mass, and only particles without rest mass, such as photons, can travel at the speed of light. The following year, the scientists were forced to withdraw their results after finding a flaw in their experiment. This reaffirmed that neutrinos, like everything else in the universe, are bound by Einstein's theory of special relativity. In the Andy Weir book The Martian, on which the new Ridley Scott movie is based, astronaut Mark Watney's left marooned on the red planet after his fellow crew are forced to flee during a violent dust storm. With any chance of a rescue years away and with only a few meagre supplies, Watney fights to survive the harsh environment. Of course, that's Hollywood. In real life, the thin Martian atmosphere, where air pressure is just 199 that of sea level on Earth, means even the most powerful global dust storms on the Red Planet won't damage equipment which had already survived the rigours of Martian EDL, entry, descent and landing. So let's give the movie a pass on that one and instead focus on the sort of technologies which we really do need to science the heck out of for humans to undertake that first historic mission to Mars. After Mercury, NASA used the Gemini program to develop the skills and technologies such as space navigation, manoeuvring, docking and undertaking spacewalks which were all needed for the Apollo lunar missions which succeeded in putting man on the moon. These are among the same skill sets humanity will need for the much longer mission to Mars. Sending the first people to Mars is currently slated for the early 2030s, funding permitting. Astrogeologist Dr Jonathan Clark, president of the Mars Society of Australia, says we already have all the skills and technology needed to take people to Mars. All we really need right now is the political will to do it. According to Clark, we could be on the Martian surface in 10 years if we really wanted to. He says humankind is actually far better placed for Mars now than NASA was in 1961, when, as in the immortal words of President John F. Kennedy, it looked to getting a man to the moon before the end of the decade and returning him safely to the Earth again. 
According to Dr. Clark, there are five key issues we need to look at in preparation for sending people to Mars. People sometimes had the idea that it's, it's like, oh, we are putting people for two and a half years on the space station in one mission. Well, it's not. You've got a sort of six-month journey there, uh, an 18-month period on the surface, and then a, a six-month journey back. And each has its own challenge. Now, in terms of people actually living in space, you know, going to Mars, coming out from Mars, they're solved problems. People sometimes talk about it as, as if we don't know how to do it. Well, that's, in my view, disingenuous because we have been putting people in space for a very, very long time, for uh, long durations, more than 30 people have spent more than a year in space in terms of cumulative flight time. So that, that's a solved problem. We still have the issue of radiation protection. Those people were in low Earth orbit. Consequently, they were protected by the Earth's magnetic field. On a long, Even going to the moon, the astronauts in the Apollo capsules, they realized when they closed their eyes, they kept seeing flashes. They mm-hmm. thought it was them. They didn't think anyone else was going through it. And yeah. it was only later when they spoke to each other about it, they realized they were all suffering the same symptoms. That was cosmic rays going through them. It's an issue. But I, th- I think we shouldn't exaggerate these issues. Uh, we talk about the people in, in low Earth orbit. Well, first of all, while people in orbit are still within the Earth's magnetic field, the protection it gives is both gives and it takes away. Now, the Earth's magnetic field is like a very distorted donut, sort of scent which sort of comes, dips down at the poles, where the Earth's magnetic poles are, and charged particles from the sun enter into that and they end up being trapped in the magnetic field and, and spiral backwards and forwards. And they only really touch the Earth at the poles, which is why we get the aurora. But the Earth's magnetic field is not a perfect donut. It's highly distorted. It's got a long trail that goes out past the moon and the moon sort of goes goes in and out of it as it orbits the Earth. Parts of it dip down. So when people are in low Earth orbit on the International Space Station, they fly in and out of these dips, these in Earth's magnetic field, which, which includes the radiation belts. There's a thing called a South American anomaly, a South Atlantic anomaly. South Atlantic anomaly, anomaly yeah. Yeah, where the Earth's magnetic field, where the, where the radiation belts dip. In fact, they can't they, use Hubble when it passes over that. They've got to um, shut things down for a few minutes, yeah, apparently. Yeah, that's right. The things have to be radiation hardened. And so what happens is, in terms of the solar radiation, people actually would get probably as much radiation exposure from that in low Earth orbit as they would on interplanetary space. Cosmic rays, they get about half because essentially, or or 60% of what they would in in interplanetary space. If anyone spent more than 240 days in space, they've had a radiation exposure, cumulative dose, equivalent to a round trip to Mars in the shield of spacecraft. And more than 40 people have done that. Very few of the people who spent long durations in space have actually died, even of natural causes. When they have, you know, they've been in their late 60s and 70s. So it doesn't seem to have had much effect on them. The current idea is that they would look for older rather than younger astronauts uh, to go to Mars so that the cumulative effects of uh, radiation wouldn't be as big an issue in terms of life shortening. Yes, I think there's a lot of reason why people in their 40s and 50s, such as myself, are the prime age to go to Mars. A lot of the uh, consequences of low-level radiation exposure take 20 years or more to turn up. If you are 50, you're likely to show symptoms when you're in your 70s. In my view, it's not a showstopper. So for me, radiation is not an issue. So the technical issues are, well, one of them is biological, and that is we actually don't know how people will adapt with 38% gravity. Which is what it is on Mars, yeah. Which is what it is on Mars. So there's two and a half year missions. People spend six months, we'll say, in zero gravity. They're going to Mars. They then land into a place with a substantial gravity field, less than Earth, and then spend six months back. Now, we know that people can do this on Earth, that equivalent profile. Six months in space, two years, a bit over 18 months uh, on the ground, and then six months 
in space. So we know we can do that. Guy landed week before last, Padalka, who has now done something like 840 days cumulatively in space, which is equivalent to a, a Mars mission, more or less. And uh, he's done five long-duration missions to the International Space Station, to Mir. And he's the world's most experienced space travel. So we know that people can cope with multiple exposures to zero gravity of Mars mission duration. I don't think it's a problem, but it is an unknown. Okay, in terms of the engineering, to get back to your... Um, uh, Apollo analogy, there are no fundamental issues in my view, but there are things that we haven't done before and so we'll need a lot of development work to show that we can. The biggest single challenge is landing large payloads on Mars. Well, you know, we've done that before with the Mars Curiosity rover. Yes, and that was the largest thing we've landed. When it entered the atmosphere was um, over two tonnes and when the rover itself is just over 900 kilograms, a substantial vehicle. But when we're putting people on the surface of Mars, we're talking about spacecraft massing at at least 25 tons and perhaps up to 60 tons. So these are big house-sized, 737-sized payloads on the surface, which are one and a half orders of magnitude larger than anything we've done before. And again, uh, there is no fundamental reason why this can't be done, and people have done studies that show it can, but we've actually got to do the engineering to actually do it, and that's probably a, a big challenge. All right, so we're on the surface of Mars. What are the challenges that we have, oh, engineering challenges next, we have to face? The next challenge is to build the hardware to explore the surface. So the spacesuits that we use on the International Space Station or the ones we used for the Moon are not suitable for Mars. Why not? Need to, because they're too heavy. Too heavy, uh, too bulky. Too bulky. That's right. It's all right to wear something just every few months, like on the International Space Station. It's zero gravity. That's not good enough when you're going out. And, and the, they weigh about 200 kilograms. That's just not good enough for Mars. They've got to be light. They've got to be flexible. There's got to be something you can wear a couple of times a week without getting blisters or you know, injuring yourself. And they're uh, working on those now, aren't they? They've got a couple of designs, both hard-bodied and soft-bodied designs, which they're and, looking at. Uh, and the mechanical counter pressure suit, which I think is the way to go, which aren't pressurized at all except for the helmet. These technologies, I mean, again, no fundamental problem, but they have to be developed. The same applies to vehicles. If you want to land on Mars and we're there for 18 months, we want to be able to travel 100 kilometers away from a landing site. So we're going to need something a little bit bigger than a little sort of golf buggy or, or ATV type thing. We're going to need something, uh, essentially a pressurized camper van. Well, ja yeah, James May was driving around uh, NASA headquarters with that uh, moon buggy. That Yes, the chariot, exactly. The something chariot. like that. As you say, people are developing that. That's something that's got to be done, it's got to be tested, and uh, we're, we're, we're heading down that way. The third thing is what we call in-situ resource utilisation. Most of the mass that we would use on Mars is a propellant to get back into Earth orbit. If we can make that on the surface of Mars, you cut down the mass we need to take to Mars enormously. Instead of launching a spacecraft from Earth orbit that masses 1,000 tonnes, you can launch something from Earth orbit that weighs 150 tonnes. Am I right in thinking that they're working on that as well through digging into the permafrost and then converting the, the frozen water ice into separate hydrogen and oxygen? There are a number of ideas. That's certainly one thing you could do. You can also extract water from the Martian atmosphere. You can bring hydrogen with you from Earth and react that with the carbon dioxide in the Martian atmosphere and make methane and oxygen. And once you can do that, of course, if you're making 50 tonnes of propellant for the ascent to return to Earth, you can make a few tonnes just to keep your crew alive or to power your vehicle to explore the surface. So once you've done that, life becomes a lot easier, logistically. So the first thing to do before you send people there is to send automated factories up there which actually manufacture your rocket fuel. That's right. This is the whole secret to Robert Zubrin's Mars Direct proposal, is that you make all the propellant, collect all the oxygen you need, all of the water you need on the surface of 
Mars before you send your crew. And we can do that with technologies that have existed since the 19th century. It's okay. still the issue of food, isn't there? We don't need a lot of food. In terms of dry weight food, it comes down to a bit less than one kilogram food per person. So a thousand days, that's a ton. Six people, that's six tons of food. Uh, yeah, that's the size of a small room. And the capacity of a Dragon spacecraft. Indeed. Food is very hard to do because you've got to grow crops, you've got to process it, and you've got all the vagaries of, uh, you know, maybe the crops won't grow well under Martian gravity, or maybe there'll be trace contaminants in the soil they don't like. I mean, if you were surviving like the Martian, uh, it beats dying. But uh, in terms of a planned mission, you would research it, but you wouldn't build your mission on it. And it's not that amount of mass anyway. Uh, as I said, about a ton per person for the duration of the mission. Okay, well, I guess that leaves us with getting back from Mars. All our sample return missions to date have uh, been from really low gravity places like asteroids and, and the, the moon, Russian of course. Yes. Uh, had three successful sample return missions from uh, the moon back in the early 70s. Launching from Mars back to Earth takes less energy than launching from Earth to Mars. So it's easier to come back from Mars than to go to Mars, but a bit harder because you need more thrust than coming back from the moon. But again, we haven't done it, so the technology actually has to be built and tested and proven before we put people on it. So based on those five prerequisites, based on what you've told me, it seems like we really do have the technology in our grasp now to be able to carry out a mission to Mars. Yes, I think the technology is largely here. It, it's just a matter of building the, building the hardware. And I think the biggest challenge for going to Mars is the socio-political decision. I have sitting on my desk a model of a, a spacecraft that was designed in 1968 that could have landed people on Mars in 1986. And the only Thing that didn't happen was a political commitment to doing it. That brings us to the $64 question. When are we likely to go? Well, if we put our mind to it, which means, of course, uh, we you know, being the human race and we devoted sufficient resources to it, we could be on Mars in 10 years. That's Dr. Jonathan Clark, president of the Mars Society of Australia. And that's the show for now. Star Stuff's produced by RN Science at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. If you're in the United States and you're listening to Star Stuff as a radio broadcast, don't forget you can ensure that you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show as a free weekly podcast through iTunes. Just type in ABC Star Stuff in the search box and click subscribe. Or you can download the show from the ABC Science website at abc.net.au slash science slash star stuff. 